My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Well, welcome to uh, another day as we go through the Word of God and we're continuing our journey today through the book of Matthew, in particular, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. And I would encourage you, if you've not watched the previous videos uh, or listened to the previous podcast, please go back and do that. Uh, But this is like this incredible sermon, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he covers so much in it, and it's never been improved upon. And I want to encourage you, share this Comment, tell me what you think about it. Tell me what you're getting out of it. Uh, tell me what, what's resonating with you. Share it with other people. Uh, this is an amazing, an amazing sermon and uh, I love it that we're going through this. I'm glad that you are joining me. Uh, we're going to continue today at verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, For you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Now, why is he talking about this? Because in this section, Jesus is showing the true meaning of the law. In the previous section, he's just talked about how he's the fulfillment of the law. But the true meaning of the law isn't Jesus pitting himself against the law of Moses. It's Jesus against the false and a superficial interpretation of the law of Moses. And in regards to the law, the two errors of the scribes and the Pharisees were that they both restricted God's commands, as in the law of murder, and then they extended the commands of God past his original intention, as in the law of divorce. So that's why he's setting this up. And he says, you have heard it said. These people had not really studied the law of Moses for themselves. All they'd heard was the teaching uh, on the law from the scribes and the Pharisees. And in this particular matter, the people had heard the scribes and the Pharisees say, you shall not murder. And when Jesus said it was said to those of old, he's reminding us that something isn't true just because it's old. And if it's not true, then its antiquity is no credit to it. John Trapp. Jesus said, but I say to you. So Jesus here shows his authority. Because he's saying, I'm saying something different than what you've heard from the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus is not relying on whatever they've said. He's going to teach these people this sermon, the the followers, the disciples, however many people were there. He's teaching them the true understanding of the law of Moses. Spurgeon, what a king is ours who stretches his scepter over the realm of our inward lusts. How sovereignly he puts it, but I say unto you. Who but a divine being has authority to speak in this fashion? His word is law, so it ought to be, seeing he touches vice at the fountain, head, and forbids uncleanness in the heart. And he says, Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. I say to you, I say to you, think about this. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Okay. Uh, The teaching 
of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not murder, was, was very true. But they had also taught that anything short of murder is totally okay. Nothing wrong with that. And Jesus corrects this and he makes it clear that it's not only those who commit the act of murder who are in danger of judgment, it's those who have a murderous intent in their heart are also in danger of judgment. Uh, Jesus here exposes the, the essence of the scribes' heresy. To them, the law was really only a matter of external performance, never about the heart. But Jesus brings the, bo- the law back to matters of the heart. David Guzik. We should empathize, or emphasize that Jesus is not saying that anger is as bad as murder. It is profoundly morally confused to think that someone who shouts at another person in anger has sinned as badly as someone who murders another person in anger. Jesus emphasized that the law condemns both without saying that the law says they are the same things. The laws of the people can only deal with the outward act of murder. But Jesus declared that his followers understood that God's morality addressed not only the end, but also the beginning of murder. Uh, William Barclay, commenting on the, the specific ancient Greek word that was translated for angry, said this, So Jesus forbids forever the anger which broods, the anger which will not forget, the anger which refuses to be pacified, and the anger which seeks re- revenge. Okay, interesting part of verse 22. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. To call someone Raka uh, express contempt for their intelligence. It, it, it's, it's like calling someone a fool, uh, but there's no English equivalent. That's why the word, the original word is, is in the Bible, because there isn't anything to, to give it an equivalency. Calling someone a fool showed contempt for their character. E- either, either one broke the heart of the law against murder, even if it did not commit murder. Uh, now, commentators have translated the idea behind Raka as different things. Uh, everything from a nitwit, a blockhead, uh, a numbskull, a bonehead, a brainless idiot. These are all descriptions of the word Raka. Uh, it, it's almost, it, it is an, an untranslatable word because it describes more a tone of voice than it does actually what the word means. And its whole accent is on the, the accent of contempt. It's meant to be said with contempt. It, it's a word uh, of one who despises somebody else with an arrogant contempt, William Barclay said. Okay, verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will be by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Jesus considers it far more important to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters than to perform any religious duty. Jesus says we must be first reconciled to them. Uh, We can't think that our service towards God justifies bad relationships with others. Well, I'm a good Christian and I serve at church and I do this, this and this, but, but you're not reconciled to your brother and your sister. We can't think that our service towards God 
allows us to get away with not dealing with those things. We should do what Paul commanded in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. As much as it depends on you. That's what we're meant to do. Jesus says, agree with your adversary quickly. In other words, agree with the person who has an adverse opinion to you quickly. (laughs) Jesus commands us to quickly settle anger and malice that we have with somebody else. When we ignore, pass it off, then what it does is it imprisons us. You will be thrown into prison. Paul actually expresses the same idea in Ephesians 4, 26, 27. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. When we hold on to our anger uh, against somebody else, then we sin and we give place to the devil. And, and so, you know, Jesus is not saying you have to have the same opinion as the person that has an adverse opinion to you. He's saying don't get angry with the person that has an adverse opinion with you. That's what he's saying. Uh, assuredly, I say to you, you'll by no means get out of there till you've been paid, to pay the last penny. So if you do get into prison, okay, because you, you, you have uh, had this anger and malice rise up within you, then Jesus is here speaking again in, as a figure of speech. And he's saying the ultimate penalty that, that somebody pays at the hands of a judge or the officer, and when you're in prison, can never be satisfied with money, the last penny. But the reality suggested by these strong figures of speech reminds us that the suffering of eternity is actually indeed eternal. And this is the point that Jesus is trying to make. Verse 27. You have heard, here he goes again with that statement, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus deals with what they had heard about the law of adultery. Now, the teachers of the day taught that adultery itself was wrong, but they applied the law only to the actions, not to the heart. And Jesus explains that it's possible to commit adultery or murder in our heart or in our mind, and that that's also sin, and it's it's prohibited by the command to not commit adultery. And Jesus explains that it is actually possible to commit adultery or murder in our heart or our mind. And, and that's sin. Uh, he says, whoever looks at a woman, Jesus located the origin of lust back to the eyes. And it's true according to the biblical statement of Job 31, uh, and, 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 and most people's life experience. Guzik, David Guzik says this. However, It is important to understand that Jesus is not saying that the act of adultery and adultery in the heart are the same thing. More than a few people have been deceived on this point and say, well, I've already committed adultery in my heart, so I may as well go and do it in practice. The act of adultery is far worse than adultery in the heart. Jesus' point is not to say that they are the same thing, but to say they are both sin and both prohibited by the command against adultery. Some people only, uh, you know, stay away from committing adultery because they're afraid that they're going to get caught. But in their heart, they, they're happy to commit it all day, every day. And, and, it, and it's good that they keep from the actual act, but it's bad that their heart's filled with it because that's sin. G. Campbell Morgan said, this principle applies to much more than men looking at women. 
It applies to just about anything that we can covet with our eyes or our minds. These are the most searching words concerning impurity that have ever been uttered. Adultery in our heart. Now, since Jesus considers adultery in the heart a sin, we know what we think about. We know what we allow our heart to rest on. We know what we allow our mind to dwell on. And we know that all those things are a matter of our own choices. Many people believe that they have no choice and therefore no responsibility about what they think about. But that actually contradicts the teaching of Jesus here because we, we may not be able to control passing thoughts or feelings, but we certainly do decide where our heart and our mind will rest. So you have to think about that. Like how many times does your mind think about something that you know is not right and you've got to bounce off that idea? You've got to bounce off it. Go, oh, no, no, that's not what the Word of God's. Nope, that's not the way I'm meant to think as a, as a Christ follower. I'm not meant to think like that. And you move on. Or you dwell on it. Now, I'll tell you two ways that that happens. That happens about anger when people have wronged you and you stew on it. You're just dwelling on it. You get to the point where you want to kill them. Maybe not physically, but you might say that. You might say, oh, uh, or lust and adultery. You, you might look at somebody, you know, oh, no, don't have that thought. That's wrong. Don't, don't move on. Or you have that thought and then you start going, hmm, and then you take it to the next step in your mind and you take it to the following step. What was the thing that you were thinking about when you went to sleep last night? What can you do to change what your mind is resting on when it's not in alignment with the Word of God? See, D.A. Carson said this, Our imagination is a God-given gift, but if it's fed by dirt in the eye, it's going to be dirty. All sin, not the least sexual sin, begins with the imagination. Therefore, what feeds the imagination is of maximum importance in the pursuit of kingdom righteousness. So that means, what are we looking at before we go to sleep? What are we looking at when we wake up? What are we looking at when our mind wants to rest on the wrong things? Jesus, you've got to remember, he was tempted in all ways, Hebrews 4.15. He endured such temptations, but he never gave in to that sin. He was able to see women as something other than just objects for his own gratification. And that's what he wanted us to do too, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Two incredibly mind-blowing verses that I'm sure when they were listening to them, uh, I'm sure somebody was like raising their hand when these verses, now I can't prove this, I just think somebody's raising their hand, I've got a question, I've got a question, sorry Jesus, I've got a question, (laughs) I, I I need some more clarity on this one. Jesus uses a figure of speech here. He's not talking literally. Now, sadly, some people have taken this literally and they've mutilated themselves in a mistaken effort to pursue holiness. Uh, for example, uh, there was a, a famous early Christian uh, and he was a, an author and we quote him often. His name was Origen. He actually castrated himself on the principle of this passage. 
David Guzik, the trouble with a literal interpretation is that it does not go far enough. Even if you did cut off your hand or gouge out one of your eyes, you could still sin with your other hand or your other eye. And when all your eyes and all your hands are gone, you can then sin with your mind. (laughs) And we can't cut that out. F.F. Bruce, mutilation will not serve the purpose. It may prevent the outward act, but it will not extinguish the desire of the mind. Jesus stressed the point that we must be willing to sacrifice in order to be obedient. If part of our life is given over to sin, then we have to be convinced that it's more profitable for that part of our lives to die than it is to condemn our whole life because of those things. That's one of the things that many people are very unwilling to do. It's why they remain trapped in sin. They never come to Jesus because they never get beyond some just kind of wishy-washy hope to be a better person. Verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. In Jesus' day, many people actually interpreted the the law of Moses and the permission contained therein for divorce. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1. Actually, let's... uh, Let's go ahead and read that because we've got a lot of references to make to it. This is what Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, this is what Jesus was talking about. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who then took her as a wife? And then it goes on and on and on. Uh, that, that's what the certificate of divorce was a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, many people in Jesus' day had taken that passage as any reason that a man's not happy with his wife is grounds for divorce. So literally, there were rabbis of the time who said that if your wife uh, ruins your breakfast and doesn't cook your breakfast properly, you can divorce her. Uh, And so what it ended up becoming is the law actually became a method of cruelty against women. And the issue of divorce revolved around a very either strict or a very loose interpretation of the word uncleanness in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, because you could make it mean whatever you wanted. Uh, those who wanted to make divorce easy had a loose interpretation, and Jesus makes it plain that the idea of uncleanness is sexual immorality, not anything the wife might do that displeases the husband. Now, let's talk about sexual immorality. The, the Greek word that's used there is the word porneia, and the root meaning of that is fornication. Okay? Uh, RT France. Uh, it is used more widely, porneia, so that it could include premarital unchastity, which is then subsequently uncovered or discovered. So porneia is something 
That means anything that is outside God's sexual boundaries. Anything. And the teaching of Jesus on marriage and divorce is, is, is further explained in Matthew 19, which we are going to get to. But here we see the intent of Jesus. Getting back to the intent of the law instead of allow it to be used as some kind of easy permission for divorce. And the, this emphasis of Jesus on the permanency of marriage and the wrong of unjustified divorce actually went against the thinking of a lot of people in Jewish and Gentile cultures. William Barclay, in Greece, we see a whole social system based on relationships outside marriage. We see that these relationships were accepted as natural and normal and not in the least blameworthy. Roman culture came to adopt this attitude towards marriage. That's the culture that Jesus was speaking to in the time. Now, he goes on and he says, this is, if you do all these things, then you cause her to commit adultery. So what Jesus was saying is an illegitimate divorce gives place to adultery because God doesn't recognize the divorce and, and sees a new relationship as bigamous. In other words, being married to two people at the same time. It, it is possible for a person to have a divorce that is actually recognized by the law in the country that you live in, but not by God. If that person then goes on to marry, that's that's America for you. I mean, it, almost every divorce is based on that. Oh, I wasn't happy. We weren't happy. We fell out of love. We didn't, yeah, uh, no, you just didn't meet my needs anymore. Uh, well, I felt like I deserved better. Um, but there was no, uh, you know, sexual misconduct on either party. Now I know that there are, there is in a lot of cases, understand that. But if you divorce somebody for reasons other than biblical reasons, which Jesus says here, sexual immorality, there you go, porneia, uh, then God considers the new relationship that you enter into adultery because he sees you are still married to that other person. Now, the observation here today is that that can just blow our mind because that you could be listening to that and thinking, well, I'm, what am I doing? I'm like... I'm committing adultery right now because that's the circumstance of in which I find myself. No, you can repent of that sin right now and you can ask God for forgiveness and you can ask him to help your heart be pure towards this relationship that you're in now um, because I understand the complexities of life right now. I don't want you to be condemned by this teaching from Jesus. I want you to be convicted. Condemnation says you'll never do it. You're no good. You're useless. You're hopeless. Conviction says, no, this is what you need to do to make it right. And you have it. And through Jesus Christ, you can do that. We need to listen what, to what Jesus says on this topic, not listen to, uh, you know, just, oh, but my heart tells me this. No, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all else. So you can't say listen to your heart. That's the worst thing you can listen to a lot of the times. Uh, we, we shouldn't try and change what the Word of God says. We shouldn't try and improve it. We should just listen to what Jesus says and then that, and do what, what Jesus says. If we are in a situation and we find ourselves in a situation, there's always a path forward in Jesus. Always. And it's a path of forgiveness. It's a path of repentance. I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong. I'm sorry for my sin. Forgive me of my sin. There's always a path forward through forgiveness, through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Always. But then Jesus would always say when he would heal people, now go and sin no more. 
So when we come to Jesus for that forgiveness and healing, we've got to make sure we do live differently from that time on when we've had a revelation of what the truth is. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for today, the truth of the word and this wonderful sermon that Jesus preached. Help us to understand it. Help, 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 help our hearts to absorb all of these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day. Thank you.